0: If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Luke chapter 1 today as we continue uh, talking about the themes of Advent. We've covered hope. uh, We've covered peace. And today we come to uh, my favorite of of the four uh, just because it really makes a difference in our hearts, right here, right now. Uh, the third candle you'll recognize is different than the others. Uh, there are three purple candles, but the third candle is pink. And, and, and the third candle uh, symbolizes joy. Throughout history, the color pink, specifically pink flowers, have been associated with joy. So for the week about joy, a pink candle has been used for centuries, uh, distinct from the other Three And I think it's appropriate that this unique candle represents the joy of Christmas because it really captures the heart of why Christmas can mean and, and what it can and how it can bring joy to every one of us and and, and I think often often we feel like we are that one candle that's different than all the rest in our world. And and I don't mean that in a good way, as as great as it is and as much as we celebrate being different in our world today. I think often we feel as if uh, that we're different in maybe all the wrong ways. We often feel singled out because of our weaknesses, because of our shortcomings, because of our sin, because of the shame that we deal with. Uh, We feel different in all the wrong ways. And, And we convince ourselves that nobody struggles like we do. We tell ourselves nobody, has suffered what we have. We alone feel disqualified and disassociated because of our flaws and our faults. And, and of the many important messages of, of, that come to us during the Christmas season, this might be the most impactful and inspiring of them all. For some of us, it could just change our life and perspective on life this year. And you may feel You may feel as if you stand out for all the wrong reasons. You may feel uniquely abstract and obscure, but Christmas reminds you and Christmas reminds us that God's heart is especially open to us something that gets repeated so much that it often loses its effect that we become numb to it is how God loves every one of us. We we hear that, we sing about that, we know that, yet it becomes kind of rote, it becomes kind of, you know, so uh, it's spoken so much that we don't really know if it, it, it doesn't have the same meaning to us anymore. We talk about God's universal love, how God accepts us, how God loves us like we are. We know this, but I think sometimes we struggle believing it when it comes to us. He might love them, but does he love us? We often feel like he probably loves everyone except us. He has plans for everyone except us. He can bail things out for people except our situation. And, and that's what makes this pink candle all the more important. Because today, it carries God's universal love to every unique individual. And all of us are unique in, in awesome ways, in celebrated ways, according to the Bible. But often we feel that in the other way. We feel like we're uniquely disqualified. We feel like we're uniquely uh, you know, troubled or uniquely struggling with things. And, and that can often isolate us and make us feel as if God is talking to everyone but us today, or God has something to say to everyone but us today. And hopefully uh, on this week where the candle looks different, we can remember, be reminded that God has something to say to even us, good things to say to even us. If you think the main, about the main players in the Christmas story, we see this undercurrent truth on display through them and through their role in the story that God worked through very unique people to bring us Christmas as we know it. In fact, we know that Christmas comes for every unique person because it first came through so many unexpected people. And we've heard it so much, we talked about this Wednesday night, we've heard it so much, it's so romanticized. But the reality of it is, uh, the Christmas story came through the most unexpected of people. We've opened our Bibles to Luke chapter 1, and it's uh, the scripture that we've opened to is labeled or has a title above it, the Song of Mary, or maybe it says Mary's Magnificat, which is a Latin word for a song of praise, a song that magnifies the Lord. And, and you know, in our evangelical circles, there's probably not a more important scripture that doesn't get its shine than this one, uh, because in this instance, when Mary sings this song, and this is after Mary has been told she's going to bring the Savior into the world, after she's already compartmentalized all the emotions, she's already going through all the questions and wondering what it's going to mean for her. After it settled in on her, and she shared the news with her uh, her cousin Elizabeth, she's went back to Joseph, and they're trying to sort through all the what ifs and all the questions and all the fears and concerns. Finally. Mary spends some time privately worshiping the Lord. And, uh, and in this instance, in this moment, what makes this song so important, Mary is speaking or singing on behalf of all of us who have ever felt forgotten, ever felt insufficient, or ever felt or been broken. And as we listen to Mary's words, we get a glimpse of the true spirit and heart of Christmas because she clues us in to what Christmas means or can mean to us. How Christmas is the culmination of Jewish history when God reached down to the most unexpected, run-of-the-mill group of people and said, I'm going to use these people to bring the greatest gift into the world. So as we read through this, I want you to notice if you can pick up, see if you can pick up some themes or really one central theme from Mary's song. Verse number 46, Mary, and it says, the word is Mary said, but really it should be Mary sang because this is a song from her heart. Mary's saying, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God, my savior, for he has regarded the lowly estate of his maidservant and behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. I mean, little did Mary know just how famous she would be, just how celebrated she would be Two billion people gather together in places like this all around the world and her name is on every one of our lips. Every one of us are talking about Mary today. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. His mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. That is a key gospel verse. He has put down the mighty and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as spoke to our, he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. So Mary sings on behalf of all those who have ever felt like they have been in a lowly estate, who've ever felt as if they were uh, struggling against the, the current of this world. And, and right off the bat, Mary says or sings in verse 47, my spirit rejoices, I have found joy. And what is the gist of this? What is the per- meaning of this song? She has found joy because God has found her. That is the key transaction. She has found joy because God found her. God chose her against everybody else that could have been chosen. This song serves as a call out to every soul that's ever felt or been low, ever been depleted, ever been weak, and invites all of us to come and see what God has done through the Christmas story. A couple things, notice in verse 48 and 49, Mary remarks that she was low, but God on high regarded her. Notice the contrast. She was low, but God on high lifted her up. She was small and insignificant, but her mighty God remembered her. Do you see the difference? She was low, but God on high picked her up. She was insignificant, but her mighty God remembered her and has done great things for her. And then in verse 51 and 53, we see that she was weak, but God shared his strength. She was poor and hungry, but God enriched her and filled her. And and we're told in verse 52 and again in verse 53, (coughs) anyone that supposes they're sufficient in and of themselves, anyone that thinks they have strength, anyone who is proud, anyone who thinks I have enough, they are the ones that never get the taste of what Christmas offers. The point of this song is to highlight that salvation that God provides is beyond us. That all of us should recognize that we lack what we need most in and of ourselves. And for those like Mary, for those other players in the story who had been told by their society that they are never going to be enough, never going to have enough, never going to do enough to fit in. Well, that's okay because Christmas reminds us and shows us God has drawn near to those that are low, that are small, that are weak, that are poor, that are hungry. When you really stop and think about it, this is not a new approach by God. This is really something that God had been doing throughout the ages and really has culminated in the Christmas story. At this point, the Jewish religion was a far cry from what it was supposed to be. It was fueled by pride and self-righteousness elevating those who looked a certain way and could, you know, play the role, play the part, but those that didn't have it in them, that society cast out, were looked down upon and were chastised and were cast out. Salvation was something that only a sacred few could obtain if they just did the right stuff, mustered up enough strength. But that's not how God intended it to be. And if you really dig into the Bible, it's clear that all throughout Israel's history, God has been making choices that signaled the true nature of salvation (coughs) that he would one day provide for all. There are so many examples throughout the Bible that signal that God was always looking out for the low, for the small, for the weak, for the poor, for the hungry, and that God always intended on doing something for them, for those that were in need and those that admitted they had a need. If you read the Old Testament, this is on every page. We see God chose the youngest when the world only respected the oldest. We read about how God, next up. We read about how God chose barren women in a world that marginalized those with infertility struggles. We read about how God chose those who lacked beauty and lacked stature in a world that was obsessed with outer appearances. We see how God made leaders out of those who did not measure up in every category that mattered to the world. We see God chooses little towns and obscure towns in a world that only paid attention to major important cities. Now, one or two occurrences may just be a coincidence, but it's clear there's a pattern on display in the Old Testament. When when everybody expected God to do one thing, God always did the opposite thing. Again, on that first note, God would choose the youngest in a world that only respected the oldest. Think about it. When everybody thought Cain would be chosen, God went with Abel. When everybody thought that Ishmael would be chosen, God went with Isaac. When everybody expected Isaac to be the chosen one, God went with Jacob. And all of these had things that disqualified them. All of these had things working against them, but God chose them over the more likely candidate. And we mentioned how in the world that was, those that struggled with fertility were especially shamed. And it seems tragic that that ever happened, but that was the way the world was. Women were only valued for as much as they could, uh, for, for the children they could provide. And we read the stories in the Old Testament, and who are some of those celebrated women? Sarah, who went some 90 years without having a child and needed a miracle to have one. And Hannah, who was literally replaced by her husband, with another woman. Yet she depended on God and God used her to raise up Samuel for that generation. God selected these women that struggled with what the world thought was the worst of offenses. And he made them heroes in the story. We also read about how God empowered those that the world thought didn't look the part. Uh, in a world that thought beauty was everything, in a world that thought, and, and still thinks, come on, let's be honest, in a world that thinks beauty and looks are everything, and it's about how, what, how the strength that you have and about the display of character or display of confidence, God went with people that were overlooked. There's the story of Leah. You know, the story Jacob goes and he meets a woman named Rachel. She's beautiful, but she has a twin sister who is, the Bible says, isn't as beautiful. And yet God said to Jacob, or God, in a, in a very ironic, very very neat story, Leah is the one that God chooses to bring about, the ten sons of Israel. David was the runt of his brothers. He was the small one. His brothers were heroes. They were warriors. They were champions. Yet God told Samuel, do not look on the outer appearance. Look at the heart. So Leah with her weak eyes, David with his Small stature. They were chosen by God to be key players in the redemption story. Again, this isn't a coincidence. After it happens at multiple times, right? Abel, Isaac, Jacob, Leah, David, and, and then and then there's how God continued to pick people that were aging, people that were bumbling, stumbling along, people that no one ever had any confidence in, and yet they were the ones that He chose to make differences in the world. Abraham. Abraham, again, an aging man that was just a nobody in the midst of a sea of a million people. And yet he's the one that God started the nation through. Moses, who had, 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 had a temper tantrum, got exiled from the kingdom of Egypt. Was in his 80s and was considered a has-been. And yet God picked him and, and he could not speak well. He could not contain his emotions. Yet Moses is the one that we remember for saying to Pharaoh, let my people go And yet we read that and think he's just some great, powerful hero, but we know the real Moses. Moses was an insecure, very, very nervous man, a man that stuttered, a man man that stumbled. And yet God picked him to be the leader that Israel needed. There's the story of Gideon. Gideon, when the nation is surrounded by its enemies, Gideon is hiding in a well. He is hiding in a winepress, scared to death. When his people needed a warrior, he was hiding, trying to dodge the draft. And God went to Gideon and said, Gideon, you are a mighty man of valor. I am going to use you to save the nation. No one ever thought anything good would come out of places like Nazareth or Bethlehem. And yet, in the story of redemption, salvation does not come out of Jerusalem, it does not come out of the great cities of Rome or elsewhere, it comes out of Nazareth. It comes out of the little town of Bethlehem. Again, if this was just one or two examples, we could say, well, that's just a coincidence, but don't you see the point? Don't you see the trend? The message, as the late pastor Tim Keller once said, it's not, just that, it's not that God likes underdogs, but we're, God is trying to get us to see there's something about salvation that we often miss. He's trying to explain the nature of salvation to us. Salvation has nothing to do with merit. Has nothing to do with our contributions, our own goodness, how we look, how strong we are, how rich we are, how smart we are, how good we are. Salvation is the work of God. And in order for us to experience salvation in any capacity, we must confess that we need God's help totally and completely, desperately. God chose Abel and Abraham and Jacob and Sarah and Hannah and Leah and Moses and Gideon and David because they weren't at the front of the line flexing. They weren't expecting to be chosen. They were in the corner in shame and fear and weakness. Never in a million years did they think God would pick them. And Mary's song carries their voices and countless others who have witnessed the empowering truth about God. And Christmas punctuates these patterns of old God picked Zacharias and Elizabeth again an aging couple who had been praying for a child for years and it's to them that God begins the new age of Israel it's to them that God starts the New Testament with God picked Mary a teenage girl arranged to be married to a local carpenter to do the unthinkable through and to go even farther God picked shepherds to peel back the heavens and show that salvation had finally come. There's something, there, there, there's, there's a correlation between Mary's song and then the shepherds being chosen to go and see and then spread the good news. Look over at Luke 2, verse number eight through 20. We're obviously familiar with the story, but notice how the shepherds respond And notice what God says to these shepherds that would have been especially amazing for them to hear. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were greatly afraid. And the angel said to them, do not be afraid. Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be for all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly where there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and singing glory to God in the highest, on earth peace, goodwill towards all men. So it was the angel had went away into the heavens and the shepherds said to one another, let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass which the Lord has made known to us, to us of all people. And they came with haste and found Mary, Joseph, and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning the child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told to them by the shepherds of all people, the shepherds. Who could believe it? But Mary kept these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told to them. So again, continuing this theme of of unlikely, unexpected people. When you really think about it, the role of shepherds, they served a a very important role in their society, but they were treated with a great contrast to that. The hypocrisy of religion really shines out. But when you think about it, the shepherds, served one of the most essential roles in their day, yet they were the most ridiculed and disassociated people in the entire nation. It it really made no sense. They were always hanging out with the sheep and half a more of every flock was not acceptable to offer with blemishes and with uncleanness. So shepherds were always labeled as unclean because of this. They were only considered good for raising the sheep but they had to pass the sheep off, the temple officials who would come and get them and take them 20 miles up the road to Jerusalem. Bethlehem and Jerusalem, about 20 miles apart, the shepherds would raise the flocks in Bethlehem and the temple would send people to pick up the sheep from the shepherds because the very men who raised the sheep and cared for the sheep, they weren't welcome in Jerusalem. Think about this. The very people that raised and nurtured the sheep The very blood of the sheep raised by them, it wasn't considered enough to cover their own uncleanness. Can you see the hypocrisy? The shepherds were raising the sheep to be sacrificed and they weren't even allowed in the city. The blood of the lambs wasn't deemed enough to cover their uncleanness. I mean, talk about hypocrisy, right? We've talked about this before, but it's likely that Mary and Joseph, they made their way to this stable, this place that the sheep were kept because the innkeeper didn't want to deal with the uncleanness that would come along with a baby being delivered in his inn. Leviticus has some pretty strict requirements about cleaning up, after, about ma- purifying the situation, the scene where a baby is delivered. So it's very likely that there wasn't, that there was no vacancy Is that they just didn't want a baby to be born in this public facility. So the the innkeeper must have said, hey, go to the barn out back. That'll be a safe place for you. Nothing's clean about that place and you can get it as dirty as you need to get it. But consider the bigger picture. Mary and Joseph take Jesus, the Lamb of God, to the stable where lambs were kept by the shepherds. In this story, the, sh- the shepherds are out in the pasture with the grown sheep, but the babies were kept in the stable. And on this night, a different kind of baby lamb was brought in and laid in the manger. And while we see the symbolism, the society around them just saw a bunch of uncleanness and a bunch of unholiness, but we know it is the most holy night of them all. But, but it's really the moment The moment that we can remember that lasting, true, sustainable joy came into the world to a group of people that thought they would never find it. Luke 2 verse 10 is is an all-time great, memorable verse. Do not be afraid. Behold, I bring you good tidings, good news of great joy, which will be to all people. Emphasis on all people, including you shepherds including you. You've been told you don't fit into the story. You've been unwelcomed. You've been disassociated. You've been cast out. But now you are being written into the most important story of them all. Jesus came to a group of people that had come to terms with how they would never fit into their world, how they would never be good enough. They would never fit in. I got to ask you this, and I think we can relate to this, but can you imagine how demoralizing it must have been for these people on a soul level? Can you imagine how the the feeling in so many hearts, how demoralizing it was for people as they tried to measure up, they tried to find self-worth, they tried to find joy, but they just never could. Of course, you and I can imagine that because we do it all the time. We spend our lives trying to measure up, trying to find self-worth, trying to be good enough, trying to earn it, trying to find joy in this world. And we never do, do we? We know how demoralizing it feels to try and always come up empty because we do that with our entire lives. All of us, we believe this lie that, that joy and fulfillment is locked behind some gate of this world, someone's approval, some recognition, some success, some amount of material goods or treasures. We all believe those lies. Every single day we believe this lie. We spend our lives pouring ourselves out, trying to be filled up by this world. And all of us again and again and again, we come up empty, yet we keep going back to that same well, don't we? And here's the the gift of Christmas I don't want you to miss. Here's what Mary has told us. Here's what the shepherds have revealed to us that Christmas has brought us what this world cannot give us. Th- this might be, and this might sound funny, but this might be the most saving part of salvation. As in this might, this might save you the most of any area you need to be saved in. This might be the most saving part of the gospel. There is joy, there is lasting joy available to you, to every one of you in Jesus alone. But that's the key. In Jesus alone, there is joy available. This this can save you in ways you've never felt saved before. There is lasting joy available to every one of us. But you have to go through Jesus to get it. He came to a people that had nothing in this world, that were never going to be rich, never going to be famous, never going to be liked. They were weak, insignificant, unworthy But just like Mary sang back in her song, her soul felt its worth. Her soul found its worth. God accepted her and God brought joy to her soul. Listen, I don't mean to be mean, but you and I are played like a fiddle by this world day after day. We find ourselves heads down, discouraged, overwhelmed, disgusted, defeated because we just can't find lasting joy. We just can't find sustainable joy and we get brief snippets of it, we get brief feelings of it, but it's so fleeting, isn't it? Look up here. Christmas shows us that joy is something that God gives us. It promises that it is indeed obtainable, but it makes it very clear. It comes through and it stays because of Jesus. When Jesus first began his ministry, he met a woman who was uh, like these shepherds and outcasts. She was marred by immorality. She had so much regret. She'd been making the same choices again and again and again. And she went to continue to go to, to the same places that proved unviable. So Jesus meets her one day and he puts it to her as plain as it can be. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Ma'am, I mean this. I love you. But if you keep coming to this same well every single day, expecting it to satisfy you, expecting it to make you joyful, you are going to continue to be disappointed. It might make you feel good on some days. It might not do anything for you on other days, but it's never going to be enough for you. And you come here day after day, season after season, and you wonder why you're so empty. You wonder why you don't have joy because you keep coming to the same well. And everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, it sounds pretty arrogant to say this. She didn't know who Jesus was at this point, but we know who Jesus is. I will give him water and he will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him or her will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So let me break this down as simple as I can for you. You might not agree with me. You might want to push back and argue with me, but this is what Christmas tells us. This is what Jesus tells us. Joy is not emotional. It's not situational. It's not circumstantial. It's not political. It's not relational. It's not financial. It's not professional. Joy is spiritual. Hear that? If you are waiting on your emotions, on your situation, on your circumstances, if you're waiting on something in this world, somebody in this world, I don't care if they're the person that should make you happy. If you are waiting on somebody or something in this world, and, and I, 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 I want to make it very clear, including church services, including family, including the things that you think should scratch that itch. Listen, those things are supplementary. Those things point you to Jesus, but they are not Jesus. You hear that? Those things point you to Jesus, but they are not Jesus and they never will be Jesus. A pastor told me years and years ago, Justin, every single Sunday, Satan is going to be targeting your joy. You are going to be obsessed with numbers, with attendance, with responses. You're going to be obsessed with all the visible things and the joy that God has for you is not found in any of those things. The joy joy God has for you is found in the Jesus you preach. And listen, y'all, should everything work like it should? Should everything be working like it's supposed to be in this world? Absolutely, but it doesn't always. Joy is not emotional. It's more than a feeling. It's not circumstantial. It's not situational. It's not anything to do with your relationships, your politics, your finances. It's not got anything to do with those things. Can those things point us to Jesus? Yeah, but they are not Jesus. Joy is spiritual, so that leaves us with one option. If joy is spiritual, there's only one option for where it comes from. And what does Luke 2.10 tell us? I bring you good news of great joy for all people. Joy came into the world exclusively through Jesus. We will not find it. We will not keep it any other way. We cannot take our eyes off Jesus, shift our gaze to other sources, supposing that certain results can make us feel the right way. That is Satan's great deception on this world. If we just keep drinking from these emotional, situational, circumstantial wells, we will just keep getting the same results. Listen, I know how good the winds of this world can feel. I know how good it feels when things go right in this world. But if I shift my faith to those things, guess what happens when the losses come? If I shift my faith from Jesus to the good things he has given me in this world, when the bad things in this world come, my joy bottoms out. No sooner do we chase after the highs of this world will be devastated by the lows of this world. They will come fast and hard and break us down miserably. And here's what Jesus offers us. Here's why Jesus came into the world. He says, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be full. So what is he saying? My joy can be your joy. Do you see the transition there? He says, I have said these things. I've come into the world. What was the song on that first Christmas night? Good news of great joy for all people. I mean, have you ever ever tried to please all people? You can't do it. Have you ever tried to please a household of people? You can't do it. And can you believe that God said, I've got something that's going to be what everybody, everybody needs? I mean that's a little bit that's a little bit of a statement isn't it that God said I've got something that's going to give everybody what they need now here's the thing you can you can roll your eyes and say well that doesn't work for me you can you can you can let the devil tell you that this doesn't work for you or for everybody else or you can believe that if God was crazy enough to say something like that he must actually mean it and he must not be crazy he must be telling the truth right and if we're gonna believe that God sent his son into the world through a virgin woman and that God put it on display through shepherds, if we believe that, then why don't we go the extra step and say, this is where my joy is found? Through following, trusting Jesus. There's no excuse for us to believe the lie that we can find joy through any other avenue. And I'm not saying that you can enjoy life God gives you a lot of things to enjoy in this life but you don't let those things take the place of Jesus because when those things go, and they will, Jesus doesn't, he stays. The first Christmas night directs our attention to Jesus and tells us to keep our eyes on him. He is good news of great joy. He is salvation to us. Verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill towards all. Do you see the contrast there? God in the highest has reached down to those at their lowest. You may feel and you may be at your lowest, but God in the highest has reached down for us. He fills our soul with worth and joy through Jesus. And let me just make sure I clarify this. Joy is not some fuzzy feeling that makes you never have a bad day. Joy is not some numbness to all the evil in the world. Joy is rooted in your faith that God is who he says he is, and that Jesus is who he says he is, and that he came to do for you what the Bible says he came to do for us. And somehow along the way, you find a way to have a peace about yourself, a joy in your heart that cannot be chipped away at by this world. When you feel your joy slipping, fading away, lift your eyes up again. Remember how God has always chosen sinners like us to, to, to do great things for us and through us. Christmas punctuates his promise and his approach. Jesus came to all of us. He's not going to leave any of us. We have found favor with and through him. And because, all, because of all of this, we can walk with him day after day and know that no matter how we feel, no matter what the world says or what the world thinks about us, we have what we need in Jesus and he will always be enough for us. Because unto us, a savior has come. Joy has come into the world once And for all. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy for all people. If you're here today and you feel like you don't fit into the category of all people, I beg you, come down and talk to God and say, God, am I included in the all people part? Because if you, I believe you are, and God believes you are, but if something in you says, I don't think, I just don't see it. I don't think I can ever find a joy that doesn't fade away. If you doubt that that joy can be yours, just come and ask God for it. I dare you. He will not let you down. As surely as we celebrate Christmas, joy has come into the world and it's not found through me and it's not found through the person before you or behind you. It's found in Jesus and he will never let you down. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the good news of great joy that has come into our world. Father, thank you that you have brought to us a gift that we cannot find, we cannot obtain through any other means, through any other way. Father, just being honest, I think everybody here can be honest and admit that we struggle with joy that, that we, we have hope that doesn't fade away. We have a peace that stays with us, but we just don't, we just are not, we're just not with it when it comes to joy. We are so all over the place. Our emotions get the best of us. And there's so many reasons. This, there are so many things that make it hard on us, obviously. But that doesn't mean this promise is any less true. And that doesn't make your, you any less God. The, the, despite all the things that work against us, you have made it clear joy has come into the world. So God, if there's somebody here today that doubts that joy can come to them, if there's someone here today that's convinced that everything has to be perfect for them to have joy, would you challenge them on that? And would you lean into them? And would you let them lean into you? And would you show them that joy is obtainable and joy is sustainable through Jesus? And, And maybe the reality of it is they just haven't ever realized that, God, you are so much bigger, you are so much higher than them. And at their lowest state, in their weakness, in their insignificance, they've wondered, do I fit into the story of God? Yes, you do. Yes, they do. You love them, and you are elevating them today through the promise of Christmas. So God, would you fill this house today with your spirit? Would you reach out to your people? And would you let that one that's struggling today know they can find joy through Jesus, through Christmas. We ask this in his name. Amen.